Happy used to be tax day, everyone. Getting back to our draft scouting, this will be the third profile that we've done. Usually do them towards the beginning of the week. We've already done James Wiseman. We've already done Anthony Edwards. We're going to do Isaac Okoro today, the big wing out of Auburn. want to remind you, this is going to be the last time that we're going to put the coronavirus daily podcast, the COVID daily news at the end of this. It is switching over to its own feed. Please subscribe to it there. Just search Nate Duncan in your podcast player. It'll come up. You'll find it and you can give us a rating more importantly share it on social media tell your friends those in-person recommendations are the best we're hoping to see if we can build that up uh, to being its own feed and, and still be worth doing it's uh i won't say that it's been enjoyable to do it but it's been at least uh, somewhat valuable and you could also find a link to it at the pinned tweet on my twitter at nate duncan nba all right let's get started danny let's hear some about isaac okoro the most recent measurements that I had, this is another challenge of the way this process has gone, is that we don't have, you know, like combine, anything like that. The most recent I could find, six foot five without shoes, 225 pounds with a six, eight and a half wingspan. When I was looking through NBA.com's measurement database, the closest for as when he was a draft prospect is Solomon Hill. He was similar height, still a similar run in every aspect. Josh Hart as a prospect was actually pretty close as well. Okoro turned 19 in January, so his rookie year will be his age 20 season. And then a little bit of bio. Uh, he grew up on the outskirts of Atlanta, was a productive high school player, five stars on Rivals and four star on ESPN, so he was in the 30s. Played in the Hoop Summit in 2019, was on the under 17 team usa team that won the gold in fiba and but when you think about it somebody going from being in the 30s as a prospect to being a one and done lottery pick is somewhat unusual though far from unprecedented yeah and i think being on a a good team this year auburn really helped him i'll add one thing to the physical attributes that you discussed and that is eight four standing reach was uh, the most accurate i could find that's that's not huge that's like kind of six nine wingspan eight four standing reach that's kind of normal closer to like maybe big shooting guard size that is not like big wing size you know like andrew wiggins for example is six six seven one wingspan you know when you you look at some of the best defensive stoppers in the nba those guys usually have pretty close to a seven foot wingspan and are a little bit taller he's really more of a shooting guard size player at least from a height standing reach and length standpoint Right, and I actually think that's a, a, a worthy place to start because Okoro, his best, you know, the best parts of his film, the best parts of his reputation are on the defensive side of the ball. And I had to caution myself a little bit because Okoro is very much the type of player that I overrate as a draft prospect because he's smart, he moves his feet well. And so I had to, and especially because a lot of times players with his, let's call them limitations, just because relative to NBA talent, like what we were just talking about in terms of the the, the tools, that you, you sometimes that's something that I, I paper over too easily when it's really a material thing. Because if you have a player who is a talented defensive perimeter guy, but he can't defend the other team's best wings, they can still provide value. They could still be a good regular season player and all that. But it does get, it, it makes them, less valuable if they can't do that job against everybody yeah i agree with you if you're talking about drafting this guy in the top five which is where some of the projections have him my thought is if you're gonna draft a guy for defense you better be a thousand percent sure that he's gonna be awesome at defense and defense is very very difficult to evaluate you know i think it is uh, we've seen a lot of players 
go from not really caring about defense to getting good at defense because that's what they had to do to survive and a lot of times the guys who have the best physical tools also were really good offensive players they come up and they just don't necessarily have that mentality they have to learn it over years and years in the nba perhaps as it becomes clear that they're not going to be the offensive superstar and they have to find another way to make a living so all that said clearly based on watching and i know when you talk about limitations you're talking more from a skill level right absolutely uh athletically but like you i really wanted to like him let's put it that way right and for me the first exposure i had to Cora was actually not watching his film but i chose to watch th- the game against auburn when we were doing anthony edwards because i was excited that the possibility that Cora was going to guard edwards which didn't really happen in that game so i was focusing on edwards and whoever was guarding him at the time and i wrote in my notes i think i'm seeing more that i like from Okoro than from anthony edwards in that entire game that i watched even though he wasn't the focus he was just kind of you know i'm, I'm more laser guided in those games on a single player because that's the whole point and he you know makes he he works hard defensively he moves his feet pretty well got asked to do a lot I mean that Auburn team they were I when I looked at uh, Ken Pomeroy's work they were better offensively than defensively which stunned me because I like the defensive film on Auburn so much more and Akora was a part of that because he both moved defended well enough on kind of everybody that Bruce Pearl was cool with giving him very challenging assignments but also because he was a part of Auburn just not hitting any three-pointers which is another important part of the story here yeah absolutely so uh, also worth noting too from a statistical standpoint plus minus was very good they struggled in uh, games that he missed like they got blown out at Georgia in the the second matchup with them that, that he didn't play in um so let's talk about his offense first, and then we can shift to that defense. One thing, an important bit of context that we probably should have discussed is the NCAA moved their three-point line back this year. Yes. 22 feet, one inches, same as in FIBA. It had previously been 20 feet, nine inches. Way back in the day, it was 19 feet, nine inches, the same as the high school line. Uh, about 10 years ago, they moved it back to... 20 feet nine inches so one foot back and then now they're at uh, the FIBA line which I think is a good and needed step but the overall NCAA three-point percentage fell by about a point and a half uh we didn't finish the season uh, of course but uh, and that would make sense right uh, now we may see it catch up right it caught up eventually after they went back by a foot but I think also the difference just I mean even when I try to shoot it the difference between that FIBA line and that previous NCAA line that was basically kind of felt the same as the 19-9 it feels like a lot more like it's more of a heave it's much tougher to shoot a a pure jump shot from back there probably something we should have discussed in the the context uh, of Anthony Edwards as well because he was very focused on not taking any two-pointers and so especially when you're looking at a who just turned 19 in January this is you almost have to kind of look at it more as like he's adjusting to a new line right like this is now you are about two-thirds of the way let's see so it's four feet so he's it's like a little bit more than halfway between the high school line and the NBA line and all of the way there in the corners so it's important to note that a lot of these guys are going to have an adjustment um but the shooting numbers with that context were pretty grisly they were uh, so Okoro shot 28.6 percent on 4.5 threes per 100 possessions that is not a high, you know he, he was a low usage player overall but that's low three-point attempt rate but also 67 percent on eight and a half free throw attempts per 100 possessions and something we talked about with Anthony Edwards he he, he struggled on catch and shoots but the difference between Edwards and Okoro and this is what I think is concerning about 
Okoro as a shooter is that Edwards had a lot of pull-up shots that were a part of it. Pull-up shots for almost every player are significantly, are harder and in many cases significantly harder than catch and shoot. Okoro, according to Synergy, only took 11 shots off the dribble the entire season. And he shot, you know, 0.8 points per possession on those, which isn't, which isn't great, but isn't terrible. But then he was 19th percentile, 0.73 points per possession on all of his catch and shoots where he actually shot the ball yeah that was pretty ugly uh pretty ugly he was one for 14 on what were classified as guarded catch and shoots and only 10 for 31 on unguarded catch and shoots so those are some really ugly numbers he's only taking about two threes a game uh two and a half threes a game which is not a huge number um you know and he, he was playing a good number of minutes 32 minutes a game and now he's he wasn't on film you know reluctant to take open shots like he wasn't just passing up shots that were wide open when he did have the ball off the dribble though teams were backing way off of him which enabled him to get a little bit of a head of steam going to the rim at times we, we could talk about that um but yeah pretty much no off the dribble game he had a couple of step back threes going to his left at times late in the clock that looked okay form wise though i thought it looked okay like his elbow kind of flies out to the right his right elbow he's a right-handed player uh but the left hand is not particularly involved you know it's a little bit of a stiff shot but it doesn't look totally broken. Like, I think he can at least get to be a passable three-point threat in the NBA in time, uh, if be- not a true weapon out there. Beyond that, I, I I worry that he didn't get a ton of lift, and it was he was releasing a little low. So when you also consider that NBA players are taller and faster and stronger, that he could, he could get a shot blocked a little bit more often. Though Koro, typically the shots he's taking are wide open, and so... If you're, if maybe guys close out a little harder, but if they close out, then that can work. And that actually tie, ties in with the most surprising positive for me from Okoro was I liked, I didn't love it. You know, I liked his vision and his decision making. Yeah, better than you would expect for the type of player that he was under, right. with slightly under 20% usage. Right. So he, he the two dribbles and a good decision toolbox for him is very good. I thought I thought that he was he wasn't making he w- he wasn't making yeah. too many mistakes, but he was also finding, you know, like one pass away. He was he was making the extra read, which incidentally Anthony Edwards didn't do but much despite having the ball in his hands a lot. And that's nice. I mean, it, it, so if Okoro can develop the jump shot, I I think he can become a solid enough complimentary player. I, I thought he showed some decent vision and timing as a pick and roll ball handler. He doesn't isn't nearly good enough at that to use it as anything other than like a break glass in case of emergency if he has the ball with like five seconds left and somebody goes oh shit and sets him a screen. But at least it's nice to you know be 19 years old and to to have better fundamentals there than a lot of guys do. So that was encouraging for me. But what I I couldn't shake. Well, here real quickly, uh, I disagree with what a little a little bit of what you said. But uh, let's take a quick break and then we'll get sure. to that. So you called his decision making very good. I wouldn't quite go that far. Obviously, it's a matter of degree. Like I said, I, I thought he, I did see some flashes from him as a passer. He also would have some just atrocious turnovers at times where sure. he would just throw it to guys on the perimeter after he drove who weren't there. Also, we'll talk more about his drive game. But once he launched, in, he was much more of a, a one-foot driver. Uh, once he picked the ball up to go into that one-foot move, he was shooting it, and he did end up taking some bad shots that yeah, he way. Yeah, get, he gets a little bit of tunnel vision. Um, it happened a couple times in the Kentucky game I watched, yeah. where he, once he decided, like, so in that early stage when he gets the ball, and it didn't stick at that point, but you're right that it would stick a little later. Once he made the decision to drive, he wouldn't be evaluating the options as freely as he did earlier. 
yeah when he was kind of in pass mode you know he would make the right swing on the perimeter he would make some nice looking skip passes out of pick and roll if for some reason the defense double teamed the ball he hit the roll man with some nice passes over the top on occasion um and i thought you know he kept things moving i mean he wasn't a a high assist player by any means two assists a game uh so not not too crazy there but you know I, I thought he exhibited some decent feel uh for cutting for example there was one play where he was the inbounder he inbounds the ball and for some reason they double teamed it a guy on the perimeter like the guy who was guarding him as the inbounder goes and double teamed so he just cut right to the front of the rim i, I, I thought he, he had a good feel for kind of ducking him like he's he's not an absolute natural or savant but he plays the right way and i think he it doesn't make a ton of mistakes uh, so i i did like that but i think he can be effective as a driver off of closeouts for example or on that utah jazz catch the ball on the move start your drive before the ball gets there type of plays um you know i i thought he could showed some ability there but uh you're going to transition to something else now well i mean let's talk about driving before we get on to my other point because uh, i don't think it's going to be his bread and butter or anything as a pro but i i wish i I wish there had been a little bit, to me, a little bit more there because when you start to think about other than the jump shot, how do you build out the offensive repertoire? How do you build out skill set? And I yeah. like some of the tools, some of the building blocks there, but but creating a role other than being like the fifth option on a team gets difficult unless the jump shot gets around and driving, I think, is a part of that equation too. Yeah, you know, he. I think he's going to be a solid finisher for sure, especially off of one foot. He was able to get up for some pretty big dunks off of one foot. Off a of two foot, he wasn't as explosive he has to kind of load up a little bit more uh doesn't have the quickest second jump at least you know again we're when we're comparing it we're comparing him to elite athletic players you know guys who really are so good athletically that they are huge difference makers on the wing at the nba level and so i don't know that he has like that that type of pop off a second jump um pretty good left hand finishing around the rim he can do the same hand same foot finishes as well uh, from the left side a pretty good feel overall uh, for finishing uh, that was that was solid to me uh and then his iso game the numbers on that were actually pretty solid uh most of those isos would be against a big on a switched pick and roll and what he liked to do he doesn't have very advanced ball handling moves at all but he likes to just kind of get a running start and see if he can use that big body to kind of barrel his way to the room he does explode pretty well again i didn't think he's his quickness off the dribble is elite but i thought it's a very good and he doesn't you know do advanced dribbling moves he's not you know he doesn't put moves together right he'll kind of go between his legs and then kind of wait and see what happens and he can't do that next move if the defense uh, reacts to that he doesn't cover a lot of ground left to right or right to left with his crossover uh, and i thought he could get we mentioned the tunnel vision if he didn't beat his man a lot of times he would just pick the ball up try to go into a one foot move his own man would be there and he'd force up like a really difficult floater yeah that was a, a real challenge in the kentucky game kentucky has maxi and quickly in particular but they also had uh i try to remember the last guy's name they have three they have three guards that are all defensively capable and pretty aggressive and so when he wasn't getting that you know that half step those guys were all just eating him up a little bit and that is a a, a challenge because you think about where the nba goes those you get more physical you get more athletic and i want to transition back to defense because well i, I got a couple other things oh sure I, let's, let's do that first then yeah um because they liked him as a downhill driver he would play a fair amount of four and they would do like a little dribble pitch up top to where 
his man wasn't gonna and it was high enough up that his man wasn't going to follow him over that screen but then he could get the ball on the move not have his man directly in front of him that's how a lot of his dribble attacks yes began um Posting up, I thought he was pretty effective. I mean, that 225, he's got a big butt. And when teams would switch with him, you know, if he was playing the four especially and he would set a screen, he'd roll right down to the box. He was very aggressive, getting position, had like not necessarily a traditional hook shot, but could kind of turn into a floater, just use that butt to work into position, get an angle and drop step towards the basket. I thought that's something that, you know, maybe you could go to once or twice a game at the uh, NBA level. Something I wanted to mention is uh, because, especially with the sample size being smaller with the abridged season for college basketball this year, I wanted to see what the intel was on Okoro's jump shot. I wasn't, unfortunately, I didn't go to the 2019 Hoop Summit, so I didn't have that piece of intel on on him. So I went back to his high school, to the high school to college scouting reports, and the questions about his jump shot were there then too. He, like, there's some people who believe that he's he's improved his form and some of that stuff since high school, but that means to me that it wasn't just, you know, shooting 29% on college threes this year and 67% from the line. That wasn't bad luck, and he's a better shooter than that. It's that he has real work to do. Yeah, I I agree with that. And uh, the other thing I'll say, too, I, I he's uh, a threat on the offensive glass, much more than the defensive glass. Yeah, he, but, they trusted yeah. Bruce Pearl trusted him to be the go guy a lot. Yeah, yeah, the guy who crashes in from the perimeter, especially who's playing the four. He had 6% offensive rebound. That's a good number for a player like this with his physical tools. Let me see if I got anything else on his offense. I think that he is, even if his jump shot, you know, he settles in as a 32% NBA three-point shooter, I still think that he knows how to play enough. He's a good enough driver. He can get on the offensive glass. He can make timely cuts. He can post up. He can do enough where the other team can't just forget about it. Like, I, I think he understands how to play well enough that he can be a threat, even if the jump shot comes in at below average. Uh, you know, obviously, if it's terrible, then we got problems. But, you know, when you're drafting the a guy like him you just hope that you're going to be able to teach him to shoot and shooting is one of the things that does reliably get at least somewhat better in the nba uh, anything else on his offense or should we talk about that ballyhoo defense now? one one other thing i want to mention i noticed uh going through his concentrated film that i like to coro much better as a driver from the corners rather than when he drove from the center of the lane i don't know if that's just because because the way it, it changed his sight lines or you know some 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 players especially when they're a little bit more limited or they're less experienced with it they can get into some problems where you get so and also i think some of it was context a lot of the time when he was driving from the corners that was attacking off of a spot up when the guy closed out a little bit too hard you know you have more of an advantage there than sometimes when you're attacking from the top that's it can be more of an iso the guy's a little bit more settled so that was just something i noticed was he looked more comfortable he did better was creating better separation from covering from the corners and then from the top down all right let's talk about that defense now i mean just in terms of his effort level his awareness i i came away not unbelievably impressed but impressed he plays the right way he hustles after loose balls i thought in the two full games that i watched in addition to watching a bunch of his offensive plays i only really saw one play where his effort could have been a little bit better uh where a teammate took a bad shot and he didn't get back on defense quickly enough and gave up a corner three to his man um he just never gives up like he executes the scheme he denies out in the perimeter and takes away easy passes that was something that was a part of their scheme if he's guarding someone in the post he'll try in front of make it difficult to get the ball in uh he is 
excellent at boxing out he doesn't have a high rebound rate at all for his offensive rebound rate is almost as good as his defensive rebound rate but he does a great job when he's and they switched a lot he's got that big 225 pound body he would turn around get his butt onto guys and do a great job boxing out so that uh especially when matched up against a big so that his teammates could get the rebound so you saw a lot of the plays that he would make that you would say oh yeah i understand why this guy had such a good plus minus uh good awareness as well as a help guy i mean just with yeah the his, rec- his recognition about, yeah. from the weak side was something that really stood out to me and it yes. usually doesn't for a 19 year old totally right and even you know not only just coming over making some verticality plays at the rim but also like this is an example you'll see this a lot of times where he's getting posted up um but the, the guy doesn't have the ball yet and someone tries to drive and so he fights his way around that guy who's trying to post him up gets in in front of that guy and takes a charge right like he doesn't be like ah, i'm sealed off i can't do anything no he keeps fighting keeps working at it uh you know really impressive a lot of his steal he wasn't a huge steal guy uh, slightly less than a steal in a block uh, per game but slightly less than one steal slightly less than one block not combined um but a lot of his steals were just sprinting a guy down from behind and knocking the ball away they did a fair amount of, of full court pressure and just his effort level was really really high uh i was very impressed um i don't think he is quite like a shark though defensively in terms of creating turnovers would you agree with that i i would agree with that yeah it's it's he's more of like making sure his man doesn't beat him rather than trying to take trying to really gum up the works like somebody let's say like chris dunn does yeah and i wouldn't say i mean he had a few plays in the passing lanes um but a lot of and he was good at getting loose balls too but you know there weren't that many plays where i felt like he was creating the turnover um i don't think his hands i would say are relatively average right he's not just like oh man you can't dribble around this guy he's gonna take it from you it's not that type of a defensive player the other concern that i had with Okoro is at the college level it wasn't a problem for him to slide positionally you know he was you know he his default was you could say like a three or four to depending on what Auburn wanted, but he guarded people all over the floor. It, you know, that, that's the way it worked. He spent a lot of the Florida game I watched guarding their ball handlers and did a pretty good job, but I'm genuinely concerned, as I am with almost everybody who's not just that world-class level of athlete. I, I know I, I saw some Iguodala comparisons floating around with Okoro, and to me, as somebody who went to, to a rival college of Andre Iguodala's and saw him play a ton in person, to me, when I, the film I watched on Okoro, he was not that level of athlete. And then yeah, the mental... And, and Iguodala is another one of those guys with the seven foot yes standing reach and or, another or, sorry, player not standing reach, uh, and another reach. one of those players who had a much larger offensive workload and then transitioned after you know having a, a, a higher usage nba start to his career than okoro yeah. will have into being a different kind of defender Me, yeah, like, let's, let's save the comparisons for the end when we really try, sure. try to try sure to but what i was but be, what but, but what i wanted to get at is yeah. that i'm concerned that when okoro shifts to the nba that that versatility is going to tone down a lot and and, and at first it was the bigger guys because there were times where you know going against closer to NBA talent Kentucky had some guys when I was just watching the randomized film I watched a fair amount of a Coro defense there too and you don't in the SEC really anywhere you don't play a ton of NBA caliber front court players and he had problems there but then what I really started to look at in the Kentucky game it's part of the reason I watched it is those really quick guards and then when you when you ratchet up the athleticism getting to the nba just the the 20th 
most athletic point guard in the NBA is still quite good. And Okoro's not going to be great on those type of guys. And so I think that he becomes a lot less versatile physically. The mental part of it, the effort part of it, I think that'll all still be there. So what that translates to is the question of whether he'll be like an elite or a very good or a pretty good defender. I'm much more skeptical of the elite and very good parts of that while still liking a lot of what he brings to the table. Yeah, I thought that uh, I'll echo what you said about his feet not being that quick and he is fundamentally sound uh but he also there are not that many plays where he's just the guy tries to drive and he just cuts him off and gets his chest in front of him and just totally stones him usually the guy is able to get at least a shoulder past him now he has good fundamentals in that he'll show his hands he's strong enough he can still affect the guy's shot as he's driving but he does give up penetration pretty regularly in one-on-one situations and you mentioned playing against bigger players when he would get switched on to guys in the into the post uh you know you wouldn't get back down necessarily but you did see that shorter standing reach when guys could turn and shoot over him when they had some size um i'd like him better getting through screens either on or off the ball you know i I think that's that he's really he can compete he's got that strong body to create some space to get over the screen he doesn't give up uh i I think they i like him better at navigating screens than as just a a straight one-on-one guy um let's see what else did i have um i thought that he showed good awareness doing stuff like switching off the ball like if he was playing the four and they would switch at the point of attack so the point guard was on the center rolling to the rim he did a good job of picking that guy up kicking uh the guy out uh, who was uh the smaller guy back out to his man on on the perimeter Uh, that was pretty good uh i think he doesn't really like make guys uncomfortable defensively in part because he's not totally cutting guys off a lot of times when steals happen is you move your feet you've cut the guy off now he's not a threat to go by you and then you can kind of take a chance to reach in and go for that strip move or tap the dribble away you know we didn't see those type of plays he's not uh unbelievable hands there and a a point i want to make on that so okoro's the isolation defense stats are phenomenal i mean he opponents had a 0.45 points per possession on 20 it's only 29 possessions that the synergy counted it but when i watched all of those what i noticed was he did a pretty good job you know keeping guys in front of him but as you said he wasn't really cutting them off and they were getting a half step more often but then when i switched and watched the pick and rolls that he defended then that's when i started to see more of like a solid defender rather than a true standout because he there were times when he was conceding too much on the drive I liked a lot of it but there was you know I for me to think that a player was going to be a stopper I need to see more that I love and I saw a lot that I liked and not as much that I loved I think it's quite possible uh, as we can uh, transition into uh, what we ultimately think that he's going to be here. I think it's quite possible that on a lot of teams, he would be the best perimeter defender. Yes. I mean, he is, you know, he's going to be a very solid NBA athlete. He's got that strength and switchability. He's got decently quick feet. He tries hard. He's got some uh, good help instincts, not elite, but good. Uh, He executes the scheme from everything that I could tell smart player I, I was reminded this is a, a bit of a non sequitur but i had it in my notes i want to get to it uh, there was a play that i was really impressed by it was the end of uh i think it was double it was overtime against old miss and old miss has 2.2 seconds left 
They're inbounding under their own basket. They throw the ball to half court. He intercepts it and immediately calls timeout. Like doesn't try to like dribble up and and get a shot. He knew right away. All right, there's only 2.2 seconds left. I don't have time. I need to call a timeout so we can set up our own play here and inbound instead. Like that was, I I thought that was just a a really smart play that you don't necessarily see from a young player like that uh, in the heat of the moment. So I I could see him being a solid, you know, I like him more than say someone like a DeAndre Hunter who has better physical tools, but at least in terms of his size but i think uh, okoro has plays harder younger probably a little bit more bounce and much much better help instincts and just to overall play hard uh so but i don't think he's good we we're going to be talking about him as an all defense level of player in the end i'm of two minds with okoro because i at, at first i was a little bit de- dejected with the idea that he he didn't have you know like think about how good somebody has to be to profile them as a role player in the nba because a a lot of role players are stars in college that's just the way it works out and because when a player doesn't have a prospect doesn't have the depth to their game to their to to go beyond that then everything that gets less than their maximization makes them far more limited and becomes a real problem you know if the jump shot doesn't come around then what the hell does he do offensively you know those become bigger things when you don't have as many things as many tools to fall back on so that first that's that was my that was my initial thing then when i started really thinking and you know like oh man he's not like he's not gonna be that stopper guy on like a truly elite team then where i got to partially because i was been i've been writing all this like the wing preview for for uh, the athletic and all that, realizing that there is a level below that which is still incredibly valuable in the modern NBA, and that's the functional wing. That's they're not going to be necessarily a key player in a championship series, but they can be an important part of your regular season rotation, and they're not going to kill you even against the good teams. They're just not going to be as big of a strength and. I think that's where Coro's going to end up, and I, I would love it if his his motor and all of that led to him being more coachable, putting in real work on his game, and cleaning up some of the negatives that need to become at least passable, if not positives. So that's where I ended up, was the idea that not everybody has to be a superstar. never Not everybody has to be there on the wing to be valuable, to be a player. I mean, there are teams that are looking for just competence at that position, and I think Okoro can absolutely do that. Yeah, in a normal draft, I'd probably probably be thinking about him as somewhere late lottery uh and you know more he's just there's not a lot of certainty there with the jump shot i'm not sure that he has the upside to be a star now we could talk about some of the comps here as we think about what he's going to be i think one of the biggest mistakes that i've seen a lot of people make not that our own record is perfect like not even close but i think one of the mistakes that i've seen a lot of people make is a guy plays hard and he's got pretty solid physical tools for college but i think they really people underrate what it really takes to be one of the absolute best wing defenders in the NBA like you really have to have Andre Iguodala, Kawhi Leonard, OG Ananobi type of physical skills if you're going to try to guard someone like LeBron James or or Kawhi himself or just these best guys you know Kevin Durant the guys that you are going to have to face to really win the championship now as you mentioned there are a lot of players below that he I I think he could be the best defensive wing on a, a lot of teams but I'm not sure that he can be elite uh against the absolute best guys and we see you know for example Jarrett Culver or Josh Jackson right like those are the guy guys are like oh man like 
these guys play play pretty hard they got pretty decent physical skills but they weren't quite what it needs to be physically to, to be the best they didn't have the type of athleticism in culver's case uh they weren't necessarily strong enough in probably both of their cases okoro is strong enough at least i'll say that but they don't have quite that seven foot type of wingspan it's just like you want to believe in that type of player but i try to be conservative on that sort of player where i'm gonna say hey you really have you know andrew wiggins was another one who's like oh well at minimum he's gonna be this you know three and d like and, and he has more of the physical tools than maybe some of these guys but well and, know, doesn't and have people assumed it defensively with brendan ingram too yeah yeah that's another one right where you just i mean i think it seems to me a lot of people just take for granted that these players are going to be awesome defensively and the hit rate on that seems to be pretty low to me i I think we just ascribe more certainty than is warranted to players defensive outcomes and you really have to look at it more like you would a player shooting sometimes it's going to turn out sometimes it's not and if you want it to turn out you damn well better have like awesome well and physical the thing that scares me about okoro in terms of that elite stuff is that the his weak points are hard to improve he's not going unless his unless his arms somehow get longer like he's already plenty strong he moves his feet pretty well so i think that he will he will top out as a defender earlier and so that won't be as tantalizing and he could still do a lot with what he has but that is you know like to me the making the it's harder to make the case that he'll be great because how is he gonna how is he gonna do that unless he's just like preternatural at all of these other things where he seems good but not completely bonkers now let's talk about his offensive upside because perhaps that is higher than we are giving him credit for he is athletic he is a good finisher great kid apparently works really hard he has made a fair amount of improvements already is there an offensive upside for him to be a good offensive player someone who you are gonna put the ball in his hands some I think of it more as a like tertiary ball handler complimentary player, but he could do that well. And not everybody needs to be the 30 usage dynamo type of player if he if other teams can guard him and he makes good decisions when they close out then teams will be thrilled you don't like you know kind of if you could reach and i know sixers fans were aggrieved at moments in time but like the good the good times for robert covington offensively if you could reach that kind of a level as long as there's always going well he's already a better driver and decision maker than robert covington covington is just kind of a one-trick pony with his three-point shooting right but but the idea being that if teams have to guard you enough then you're getting your team is getting a lot of those the ancillary benefits making life easier on the guys who actually have to do the heavy lifting and i think that okoro can be that guy but it is not a guarantee i mean the so i mean the we've talked in many many points about how the the three part of it it's it's more ephemeral even like you know the the idea that it's not even just that okay he's made threes now so he's a good three-point shooter that can just go away i mean my former beloved travion graham is a great example of that there are a lot of different guys and with Akora, we don't know if he's going to get it, much less if he's going to hold it. And that's a, and, and all the rest of it is nice. But if you don't have the if you don't have the base shooting wise, I don't think all the rest of it fits into place. Yeah, and maybe he'll get a lot better at ball handling. You know, maybe he he can work on a floater, which he doesn't have at all. Uh, maybe he can improve his off the dribble. I mean, there's just there's so far to go. And yes, I do think he'll work at it. You know, one of the comparisons that Schmidt's made for Schmidt seems to really like him when I read his back and forth with Gavoni on Okoro 
but you know he used the jimmy butler comparison and i'm just a little wary of that because jimmy butler uh, number one i think you know a little bit more bounce even than i'd say okoro has a little bit more height it doesn't have the longest wingspan but uh and butler you know was pretty much a non-shooter when he came out of college didn't do anything with the ball but jimmy butler is you know basically one of the 10 greatest improvement stories in nba history probably you know i mean with it to become as good of an on-ball player as he became and he did it almost almost exclusively in one year uh between 14 and 15 so i'm uh I don't want to rely on that happening again, necessarily. I mean, he is a worker. He does have pretty good physical tools, if not elite. So I'm not saying it's out of the realm of possibility that he could get a lot better offensively, but it's uh, a lot is going to have to improve. Like, I definitely am not counting on that. But, I mean, I do like him better than some of the wing. You know, I probably like him better than DeAndre Hunter. I probably like him better than Culver from last year. Um, that Like, I, I think he's, uh, you know, I, I think a guy that I would be thinking about in the late lottery and a normal draft. And I'll remember last year's draft sucked too after the first two, so that's worth considering. Um, well, like I would, yeah. Even though Seku Dabuya had you know limitations in his film, I would rather roll the dice on his physical tools and upside off the top of my head. I, I still want to think about Okoro more, but my instinct is I would go with Seku over over Okoro. Yeah, we'll do our final boards in the end. I would probably have Wiseman, I would say, over Okoro, personally. Oh, yeah, I wasn't comparing him to players in this year's draft yet. Oh, I yeah, I know, I know. I'm, I'm yeah. slightly changing the subject. Sure. But, um, yeah, what about him or Edwards? Oh, boy. It's weird, because, like, I mean, there's the easy way to say it is that, like, Edwards has a higher ceiling and Okoro has a higher floor. But I'm not really even sure that's true, because... They both have weird floors if it doesn't work out. You know, like if Okoro's yeah. shot doesn't get there and he's just like an okay defender, then he's a then he's a reserve wing. Yeah, That's- I, but I I don't see a way in which Okoro. I, I would be very surprised if Okoro is like an actively bad player who hurts his team. Like True. that could be the case for Edwards. Like Edwards could end up just like not even having a career. right. Like I mean, I made the I made in the Edwards one. I made the comparison to Dion Waiters, and there are times in Dion Waiters' career where he was actively negative. Yes, uh, or uh, or inactively negative, depending on the uh, depending on the year. Sure. <laughs> Uh, all right, we can wrap up here. Anything you want to talk about before we go? No, I have, I have a bunch of things in the works, but I will announce those when they're ready to roll. All right, and don't forget about the COVID Daily News. You can search COVID Daily News. You can search Nate Duncan in your podcast player of choice. Should be able to find it. So please subscribe to that because this is going to be our last day uh, of having that. But it, it is coming up right now. Please give that a shot. Tell your friends about it. If we can get enough listenership, we're going to donate a significant amount of the proceeds to COVID-19 related relief. And we've gotten some nice commentary on it. A lot of people say it's the best way to get their coronavirus news. So sorry for tuning our own home, but that's, I mean, if I don't promote my stuff, who's going to do it? So <laughs> someone better. Uh, all right. Stay tuned for that right now. COVID daily news here in the early afternoon on the West coast, April 14th, 2020. I, maybe I shouldn't specify the year because that implies that maybe we'll be doing one of these <laughs> a year from now, which I really hope we won't be. I like, uh, but- I like the start. I like the captain's pod. <laughs> to get us going continue (laughs) did you say the captain's log captain's pod oh (laughs) yeah what what star date is this uh i I never quite got the uh exactly the uh nomenclature down uh, on that uh, in star trek um but anyway this is uh a news podcast where 
Ben Taylor and I, uh, my co-host, go through all the news. We spend hours reading all, all the most relevant news every day, and we try to give you the stuff that is going to be the most interesting, the most important for your daily life, the most important for trying to assess not only where we are now, but where we are going. And if you want to support this podcast, the first thing you can do is tell your friends about it if you think it's good. And secondly, you could subscribe at patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue, since we are not ad supported as of this time. Let's get started here, but what do you want to look at first? Well, do you want to talk about some CDC and WHO guidelines that have been discussed in the last 24, 48 hours? Yeah, the, the WHO as a general proposition, World Health Organization, they are trying to put out some guidance for governments that are considering lifting restrictions. And uh, their director general, Tidros, well, this is a tough one. So, yeah, I, I always heard him referred to as Dr. Tedros before. This is, uh, you got uh, you got two other let's, names. Let's in go with Dr. Tedros. Yes. 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 Our, um, our source has a longer name, but we won't butcher it. Yeah. So what are the six criteria that the WHO is recommending be met before a reopening occurs? So the six that are laid out from Dr. Tedros, transmission is controlled. Systems are in place to detect, test, isolate and treat every case and trace their contacts. Risks are minimized in care homes and other at-risk environments. We've talked about that uh, this week on the show. Preventative measures are in place in schools, offices, and other places people need to go. We can assume that is things like masks and any other equipment or uh, testing capacity that needs to be met there. The fifth one is importation risks can be managed. And last, communities are fully educated and able to deal with the quote-unquote new norm. Yeah, and it seems like in most places, at best, number one might be might have occurred. Maybe they're at that in China. I, I mean, I, I when I say when they say transmission is controlled, I think in particular that means community transmission is controlled. Uh, yeah. And the second part of this with the systems being in, in place, you know, maybe South Korea has that, maybe Taiwan, maybe Hong Kong, maybe Singapore, maybe China right now. Everyone else uh, seems to be working on that, but that that clearly seems like it has to be part of this uh, as well. So we're we're not close to this uh, in a lot of areas. And then, you know, these are pretty generalized discussions of how you're going to minimize risks in care homes, what the prevent preventative measures are going to be, schools and offices. We, we don't even know that exactly how well that can work, right? Like what level of transmission do you get in an office if everyone wears a cloth mask and everyone stays six feet apart, but every once in a while people go into the break room together or you're sharing the office kitchen, but not both going in there at the same time. It, it, both what those protocols are and then also how well they worked. And we just, we don't know the answers to that right now with this virus. Yeah, I, I think it's clearly a positive step as we've discussed to move toward having benchmarks or guidelines or things of this nature, but they are, they are pretty vague here. And to your point, uh, you know, what does it mean in a workplace or in a school to have quote unquote preventative measures or some of the other language that that's vague? So I think it's a I think it's a movement in the right direction, but still 
as we've discussed, probably need to get more specific, especially since each country, each city, each institution that tries to reopen is going to have different nuances that they need to account for. And there's just so many potential points of failure, too, as you're talking about reopening. And even if you just take the example of one office or one factory, okay, number one, what uh, measures should even be implemented? Cloth masks, distancing, certain number of employees are only allowed to use the bathroom one at a time. I mean, all just think of just the myriad things that could potentially cause transmission. Then there's the question of enforcement. You know, if you're going to allow this factory to reopen in any other type of worker safety thing you have periodically people checking in is there going to be some sort of reporting mechanism for employees to say hey we these measures aren't being put in and then you also have enforcement of just management for the workers right you where maybe the workers just are, are not used to these procedures and they're not following them closely enough just that whether because it's too hard or just the, they don't know the procedures well enough they're slipping up or whatever there are just so many there's so much work that we have to do it's just i mean i i I talked about this yesterday but even just for me going to the grocery store and being like okay when do i wash my hands did i wash my hands like Mm -hmm. just the the level of stress yeah that it takes to just do your daily activities and not i'm not even going somewhere and working all day uh I, i mean it's it's really incredible the amount of just retraining of our brains and the amount of work that it's going to take to implement these new procedures and check them and make sure that they're all happening is uh, it's mind bending to think of how much things are going to need to change in the absence of a vaccine or, or some other reduction in the threat level of this virus. So before we jump to the CDC, some similar kind of larger scale discussion from them that we want to get to, but Spain has reopened some non-essential services. So they have eased restrictions, uh, allowing those who can't work from home, such as, I guess it's focused on the construction and manufacturing industries, allowing folks in those industries to go back to work. It accounts for about 300,000 workers. But to plug into this conversation, you know, what those measures are to actually allow this to happen? What it, What is different between three weeks ago and now, the only thing I can tell uh, in terms of the announcement of this in Spain is that the government said police would begin handing out 10 million protective masks at metro stations and other transportation hubs while reiterating guidance on social distancing and regular hand washing. So, you know, WHO puts out one set of guidelines. Other countries are going to do different things. In Spain, what are your thoughts on that, Nate? Yeah, that's the question that everyone needs to have a the right answer to is, well, what's different about this, uh, right. about our situation now, as opposed to when we had to shut everything down? What changes have been implemented? And, you know, it's going to have to be answered on a country by country or here in the U.S., even a, apparently on a state by state or county by county basis. And my hope is just that those countries and localities that are able to be successful, that people will borrow from them quickly, that uh, that the that as we do find out what works that people will be open to changing things up instead of just being no like this is how we're doing it and being stubborn about it because you just as new knowledge is going to become available so quickly that people need to have a a lot of flexibility in what their plan is going to be yeah and i'm not i hope i don't sound critical of the spanish initiative uh hopefully it works it's just to your point interesting to note what what is new or what has changed to allow certain sectors to go back to work and then if we can monitor that and figure out what that is we can carry them over possibly to other places as well um you want to 
talk about some of the CDC stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it was about two weeks ago now that we did that episode on, hey, what what are we really going to need to do to reopen? And this is some of the first discussion that I've heard in the U.S. of us actually beginning to ramp up to the level that it is needed, um, although it does seem still more theoretical. And a lot of this is from Robert Redfield, the CDC director. Is that right? Yeah. I, yeah. I actually want to start by talking about uh, an op-ed from Tom Frieden, who was a former director of the CDC under the Obama administration. So here are some of the ideas that he came up with. Basically, a giant public health effort. He's saying, hey, the CDC really needs to be the leader on this. They have the, the resources and the expertise, uh, maybe more of the latter than the former at, at this point. But he says they need to lead a giant public health effort to trace and track contacts of COVID-19 patients. And for comparison, in Wuhan, reports were that they had 1,800 contact tracing teams of five people, each led by an epidemiologist. So that right there is almost 10,000 people just in Wuhan, which has 11 million people. And yeah, they had an uncontrolled outbreak. It, it was pretty difficult. And he notes that the U.S. equivalent for the entire country would be 300,000 people uh, that they would work in the communities they live in. They'd be led by public health specialists. And we talked about this two weeks ago, this uh, idea of becoming the arsenal of democracy, all these people who are, are available uh for even suggesting peace corps volunteers who are brought home furloughed public employees people who work at phone banks since they're doing so much uh, contact tracing work by phone getting community and religious organizations involved meals on wheels type of programs but uh also of course providing services for people who are in isolation or quarantined just a massive effort yeah exactly and Freeman noting that the agency is going to need to accelerate its effort to establish all this. And yeah, I mean, that's that number makes sense right there. 300,000 people. I think that's that's what one person for every thousand, basically, Yep. in, in the country. Uh, so Dr. Redfield, who's now the current head of the CDC, he went on NBC's Today Show and discussed some of the measures that are supposedly being implemented along these lines. Yeah, he he laid out very similar things talking about the need to be able to do contact tracing at a large scale level. Uh, quote, we are going to need a substantial expansion of public health field workers. Yeah, he uh, remember that 300,000? Yeah, he said uh, we have over 600 people. <laughs> In the field right now. Close. Well, well, that okay, so we're close, right? Because yeah. 300,000, that's over 600, right? <laughs> it is. That was, see, I like, that was the lawyer in you right there. That's, <laughs> we try to bring in our backgrounds. Those, those educations weren't for nothing. Uh, but yeah, 600 people in the field, a far cry from, I mean, to use his words, he said, we are going to have to substantially amplify that. I agree with him. Uh, he also noted that it would be premature for him to specify how exactly the CDC will do this and how much staffing it plans to put in place. But he said an announcement will come in the near future and that they are far along in those planning processes as we speak. Uh, I'm not that reassured by that, to be honest. Uh, I mean, I, I really hope we're, we're further along than it seems like. But if they were making, if there were plans to hire the number of people that it's going to take by the CDC director's uh, own statements and the former CDC director's statements and what I would consider to be what it logically would take in terms of this manpower, I think we'd be hearing more about it, right? I mean, we did this $2 trillion stimulus and as far as I could tell, there wasn't any sort of a money being put aside for these types of efforts. 
The president is tweeting at governors saying that they're the ones who need to get their testing houses in order so so that we can reopen. And uh, the Redfield did note that they may try to use cell phone data, an app tracing. Uh, They are uh, under those measures are under aggressive evaluation, he said. I mean, he let yeah, yeah. he left the door open on that. Yeah, basically, we've we've discussed that before. Uh, I think the sort of practical and ethical considerations that are on a lot of people's minds around that kind of solution will probably bubble more to the forefront if it looks like it's actually a possibility. The, the, The one thing I do want to interject on cell phone data is and I think they've leverage this in other countries where citizens are a little more comfortable with what's on their phone and using their phone. For instance, in China, like everything is on your on your phone. Um, they, they use complex apps that will have like a bunch of different services, bank services, health records, all these things in one places in one place. So the one thing I'd want to interject here just to keep in mind is that we already have apps on our phone. That, that use uh, lots of location data. Yeah, I mean, for, for everyone who is like complaining about privacy and all that, guess what? Like all this data about you is already out there anyway. Right, right, right. I'm not I'm not saying that to alleviate concerns about privacy, but your apps and all the things where you, like that data is just already existing on many of our apps as we go around anyway. And so I think for other countries, it was just a simple matter of leveraging that toward the focused effort of trace and track. Yeah, I mean, I do have concerns about privacy, as I'm sure many people do. And you would want to have a clear sunset provision in right, for when right. this crisis of, is over of any provisions that are going to use this to restrict people's movements, etc. But at this point, nobody has any freedom to go anywhere because this virus is around. So yes, restricting the freedom of individual people who might have the virus or who need to be quarantined. I mean, there is a substantial net gain in freedom, in my opinion, for if you implement these procedures for the whole country, because I might actually be able to like leave my house. <laughs> um Also, the Kaiser Family Foundation, they recently noted that uh, in a report that only the federal government could truly bring order and achieve a national coordinated effort on the scale and expense necessary for contact tracing to be effective in the United States. Maybe it could happen at the state level, but they would need a lot more money to do that, right? The federal government is the one that has much more substantial borrowing available to it. And this current tiff between the this coalition of governors that was formed on the East Coast, there's now one on the West Coast with the Washington, Oregon, and California that are going to be looking at a coordinated way to reopen. The president has said, no, it's my decision on when to reopen. And while technically the Constitution leaves that to the states, the president noted, perhaps correctly, that they have deeper pockets than the state governments do, and the state governments are going to potentially be reliant on those pockets to, to make any of their plans work. And so that is some leverage that the federal government is going to have over the states. Now, clearly, it's quite unproductive to be having this fight. We don't need to get into that much more. But as this develops and as a, a plan is created, we've tried to stay out of the political stuff as much as we can. But this is obviously going to be an issue in figuring out what the plan is going to be to get us back because we still don't really have one. My my assumption on this particular quote uh, extends to the idea uh, of communication across large projects, large scale challenges. I've worked on these projects 
projects in my past life. And if you go back to the Defense Department kind of response to September 11th, post-September 11th, they said, we need to coordinate information better. And we saw the same thing happen uh, in Obama's departments where he said, look, the thing we're learning when it comes to infectious disease control is we want to have sort of a larger scale, more centralized place where we can pass the information through. So whether that information is shared and pooled and and sourced collectively by some state coalition or formally by the federal government, I personally don't care per se. I just think the, the point and the assumption that they were probably working under is that you want a centralized place to share things back and forth because, I mean, for contact tracing, time is of the essence. So you want to have a, a centralized repository where everyone can communicate and keep track of what's happening basically in real time. Yeah. So now with the, these coalitions, California, Oregon, and Washington, are they joining up with these Northeastern states now that are going to include Massachusetts uh, as yep. well? Yeah. I think that's the idea. I think it's a 10-state coalition. I haven't seen too much press on the details that they're going to roll out moving forward. But as of now, it's a 10-state coalition where you have California, Oregon, Washington on the West Coast, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts on the East Coast. I think that got us to 10. And that together is about a third of the U.S. population just in those 10 states and also about a third of the GDP of the country. Yeah, so they haven't come up with anything yet, but they are planning to plan. They're planning to plan. Yeah, they have a meeting to talk about the meeting is where they're at. <laughs> I, I I do welcome that, but that was uh, they haven't decided anything yet. Is the point here? I was encouraged by the report of this saliva test uh, that is now apparently coming online. It was developed at Rutgers in New Jersey. Yeah, there's a sentence you didn't think you would say about a month ago. You're encouraged about the report of the saliva test. Um, I, I too was very encouraged. Here's the way this idea works. A, a Rutgers team of researchers has come up with a COVID-19 test that you basically just, it's from your saliva, you basically just spit into a receptacle. The FDA has approved this for immediate use and the Rutgers lab itself can handle about 10,000 tests a day in their lab, but because it's been approved for immediate use by the FDA, other labs can do this as well. And there are some huge benefits to this type of test compared to the test that we've talked about where you're swabbing and you're having to go up and use a lot of PPE. Basically, you can do this test quickly. You can do it in a drive-through format. They will debut it this week in Edison, New Jersey. And according to uh, Professor Andrew Brooks, who's a chief, op chief operating officer and director of technology development at this Rutgers Center where they developed this, he describes it as a game changer on three levels. The first is that we are looking at a potential shortage of uh, swabs globally. And so this can alleviate that because you don't need the swab to take the test. The second is it reduces the uh, need for personal protective equipment for those providing the test. If you imagine having to do a swab, we've talked about it, you have to get up close and transmission at that distance is dangerous. Loads are high potentially. And here you could just give someone the cup and they could give it back to you just like we do our you know delivery drop-offs on the front door. And then the last thing that he cites is uh, an increase in the amount of basically testing capacity because of how easy it is just to, to spit in a receptacle. Yeah, so this sounds fantastic. Hopefully it can get ramped up. A few questions that we at least publicly don't seem to know the answers to yet are how long does it take before 
the virus can show up in the saliva and actually be detected what is the accuracy rate uh, those are are two things I, I think you would imagine because we talked about uh, this issue of false negatives with the nasal swabs and a lot of it is just how the test is being administered you would imagine that you at least wouldn't have these issues as far as the test being administered wrong now if you have people doing it at home i don't know how sensitive this the saliva is to like contaminated samples or how long it takes them to to process it how long whatever they're detecting in the saliva is so, so just yeah i left it out it's 24 to 48 hours is the okay. estimated processing all right well that yeah that's good and i think but keep going if, if it works well i think it would this would hopefully be able to reduce the problem of false negatives also and the pp i mean all, all of it seems like it could be fantastic hopefully it's not too good to be true but uh you would think that it, if this does work this well it's something they would want to ramp up very very quickly yeah i mean we don't know the accuracy accuracy pending because that's a big issue but if it works well it goes back to another point which we've talked about before for moving forward which is the ability to retest rapidly so it's one thing to have a test and be able to contact trace in 24 you know you get the test back in 24 hours that's enough time we've talked about that uh, before but the other thing is to the false negatives if you can easily get tested especially if you're in a job that might require it or something once every five days, once every 10 days, whatever it is, to me, that's a game changer compared to all of the overhead and the risk that goes with the swab method. Yeah. And hopefully we could even get to the point where uh, presumably you can just like put the saliva into a machine. I mean, maybe you could even have, you know, make tons of these and sell them to units as small as, you know, a factory or something like that, where they could just uh, go through and test people regularly. And the more often you can test, then the smaller the problem of potential false negatives uh, becomes uh, as well. Let's turn to world news now. And Russia, not exactly the most open society in the world when it comes to reporting coronavirus or anything else going on there, for that matter. What is the latest that we can glean from them? So Russia is starting to have, at least in the official counts, uh, the signs that we've seen in other countries of potentially a large outbreak. So on April 7th, which is a week ago as of this afternoon, they had their first day where they added a thousand new cases in a day. And then in the last few days, we've had over 2000 cases in Russia. That brings them to over 21,000 cases total with that you know steep, quick, exponential looking growth right now in case count. And 11,000 of those cases alone are in Moscow. Yeah, and there hasn't really been any discussion of some wide-scale testing effort it, right. in Russia that would lead one to indicate they're catching all of the cases that are out there right now. Yeah, and and not just that, but the idea that they don't also have a huge federal response to this. That's something where there's been a little criticism internally saying, you know, for instance, Moscow, it's kind of it's kind of the lead on this has been left to the mayor of Moscow. And he's enforced some lockdown measures, including the introduction of a controversial uh, digital tracking system that is designed to help keep residents inside. But it's not something where there's this huge uh, federal effort that's been thrown at it so far. Yeah, we saw Putin with a, a few comments uh, where he was uh, encouraging local governments uh, to take action. 
indicating that it appears to be their responsibility. Another indication that things may be pretty bad in Russia right now is the number of imported cases that they're getting in China. Yeah. So that's another thing. They are basically tightening the border, the Chinese are, because of all these cases spilling over from Russia. The border essentially remains closed except to Chinese nationals right now. And the the land route, you know, the, the city that you can access has become one of the few options for people trying to get back. And in that city, they've basically said, hey, all these people are pouring in from a potentially contaminated area. Now they're going to mandate 28 days of quarantine in addition to nucleic acid and antibody tests from all arrivals coming from abroad. That, that city, by the way, is uh, uh, Suifen. I have no idea how to pronounce that. It's a strange opinion to me. Another thing that we can add here, uh, according to a Bloomberg article, more than half of the coronavirus infections reported by China on Sunday stemmed from one flight from Russia to Shanghai on April 10th. And that would certainly seem to indicate that infections in Russia are pretty widespread. If you have this many people coming in to China on one flight from Russia with that level of infection. Yeah, that's not a good sign. Now, China has uh, also come under fire, justifiably so, for the issues with uh, the African community in Guangzhou, with about 4,500 Africans live there. It's the biggest uh, African diaspora in Asia. And after five Nigerians reportedly tested positive last week in the city, according to Chinese state media... They broke their quarantine and infected the owner of a local restaurant and his eight-year-old daughter. And then another Nigerian man who tested positive, again, this is according to Chinese state media, he was accused of assaulting a nurse while trying to escape his own quarantine at a hospital. And unclear what the truth of these reports is, but that has led to a really disturbing amount of racism against the African community in Guangzhou. Yeah, and the one that I saw, some of you may have seen this as well listening, was uh, this issue with the McDonald's shutting, uh, basically having a sign out front that said, from now on, I'll quote here, from now on, black people are not allowed to enter the restaurant. Uh, in a statement that was sent to Inkstone on Monday, McDonald's China did confirm that this branch in Guangzhou did introduce this ban a couple days ago, April 11th, but they have been told to stop the actions. They issued a statement of apology as well. Yeah. Also no note that McDonald's businesses in China and Hong Kong or are majority owned by a state-owned conglomerate and its private equity arm. And beyond that, a bunch of photos and videos posted on social media showed Africans sleeping on sidewalks, waiting under shop awnings after being ordered out of their apartments and hotel rooms. Uh, others' videos showed Nigerian diplomats delivering food in the pouring rain to these evicted individuals. And another video showed Chinese police in riot gear hurting African men along a street. And the U.S. consulate in Guangzhou warned African Americans about potential discrimination. Uh, that the U.S. consulate stated that police had ordered bars and restaurants not to serve clients who appeared to be of Af African origin. Hmm. And said also that local officials are implement implementing mandatory coronavirus tests followed by mandatory self-quarantine for anyone with, quote, African contacts, unquote, regardless of recent travel history or previous quarantine completion. So this is hopefully something that's not going on everywhere in China, but it is 
a sobering example of how easy it is to go out of control with stereotyping and racism in the midst of a pandemic something that sadly has been a constant throughout human history in the midst of these kind of crises where the blame game gets started and you do have these a need to perform some type of grouping of people because that's how this virus spreads it spreads among groups it spreads among people who had contact with one another that's what contact tracing is all about but clearly just saying well you you have black skin and you're in guangzhou is going way too far with that and so when you're getting beyond it's so easy for people to go beyond the rationality of okay we know this person had contact with this person they're in a group together we've seen an outbreak in this area to say oh well you know, now we're going to start classifying people on the basis of skin color and not whether they've actually had contact with someone who might be infected. Yeah, it's well, it's the wrong grouping characteristic. Uh, putting my behavioral science hat on, I, I definitely see it as a trend in human behavior. Just just for some perspective, by the way, because at least in the States, we have a very, very long history of integrating different uh, ethnic groups. But in other countries, you know, I have family in China in Taiwan, it's a very homogenized place. So there isn't the long history or experience of dealing with these things. And it's very easy to see how in a in a real time sort of crisis development thing, you want to be able to categorize to your I thought you provided a good example there where if you're contact tracing, your category group would be maybe everybody that had contact with you. But doing that by skin color or hair color or the pants you like to wear or something is this instinct to try to solve a problem. But going way off course in a way that makes no sense yeah and you combine that with just the general angst and anger that people are going to feel in the midst of this sort of a crisis right uh, and it, you really can run into problems there's, there's a desire to want to feel like you have control and to identify something that is actionable and solvable oh i've identified we'll be okay we'll be a, we'll be safe from the virus if we just get rid of this person this group whatever and in fairness we're seeing the same thing we've discussed it a little bit we're seeing the same thing in the medical community where if you see a particular treatment that works instead of really thinking about the mechanistic cause of why it happened or giving it the full lens it needs to understand what works you, you latch onto something quickly and you say like okay this yes everybody let's start drinking orange juice and the virus will go away or whatever not that doctors have said that yeah and clearly our record here in the u.s is not perfect on this either we've seen plenty of racism towards asians in particular uh, with the the virus having originated in china and so now people are blaming asians Ameri asian americans who have absolutely nothing to do with that uh, for uh, this issue uh another piece of news somewhat same vein uh the city of uh Heilongjiang is going to reward residents who report on illegal migrants amid the growing risk of imported COVID-19 cases. This is per the Global Times, which is basically the Chinese English propaganda arm. They are going to offer the equivalent of $450 to anyone who turns in an illegal immigrant, essentially. This is where I press my button so I can pass on my rant. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's next do we have anything more uplifting than this um no i mean the, I, I guess taiwan taiwan had no new cases for the first time in over a month <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, I mean, t- Taiwan is probably uh, doing about the best of anyone right now. Um, I mean, the, we probably got more more stuff to share on China still. Um, okay, keep going. I, I could save some of that for tomorrow, but uh, I'm just buckling. I'm buckling in with the rest of the listeners right now. Um, so this is a, a CNN story that's been in a number of outlets that Beijing is basically tightening now their grip over coronavirus research. There's been a number of reports of research papers now needing to be vetted by the government before they are published. That did not happen apparently back in February. But now under this new policy, all academic papers on COVID-19 are subject to extra vetting before being submitted for publication. Studies on the origin of the virus are going to receive extra scrutiny and must now be approved by central government officials. This was a central government directive and notices that were published by two Chinese universities that have now been deleted, presumably not of their own volition. That's that's how you get the best science, right? (laughs) Isn't that what you do? Yeah. And we talked a couple days ago about how this is just going to be such a political football, whether it's elections upcoming in the U.S., whether it's just China's global stature and propaganda. And obviously that's just, it's sad that the number one priority for everyone isn't let's share as much knowledge as we can. Let's get this under control as much as we can. And instead energy is being wasted uh, on counterproductive propaganda of this. Yeah. Thing. Yep. Agreed. Should we move on or do, would we have more China news or can we? Yeah. A, a little more here. This is uh, Ian McKay is a good follow uh, on Twitter. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Australia, uh, he noted that China hasn't published any community level serology. That's uh, what we've talked about many times as a sort of post hoc test to look at antibodies within the population and determine how many people ultimately had the virus. And you would think that those studies, they're way ahead of us, should have been done. Uh, We could learn so much more about the virus from those, but oddly, no such studies have been published. And usually what's going to happen with those studies is they're going to show, especially when you didn't have that much testing capacity in the beginning, that there was a lot more spread throughout the community than was known at the time. And now with all these allegations that China is covering up, I think some of those are true. I think others is just, I mean, everybody is having trouble testing enough to show the true extent of the virus and capture every case. But now, you know, now the Chinese, they, uh, it would, wouldn't surprise me. I don't know this for sure, but it's weird that we haven't seen these studies. They have an incentive to not release studies like that because it's going to show that the virus is more widespread and that's going to get interpreted in a way that they're not going to like and make it look like they were hiding stuff, even if, whether they're, they couldn't capture it and because nobody can at this point in time or because there was a, a cover up along the lines of, you know, them denying those asymptomatic cases that we talked about, uh, in that government document that was leaked but once again it looks like we could learn critical stuff from a real study uh that would show what the extent of the virus was in china uh, in terms of asymptomatic cases or cases that were never logged and that could be critical information for the rest of the world in trying to to shape their responses but no such study has emerged yet yeah we've talked extensively there's only so many times we can say it about the funny money counting in china the one as it pertains to this story here that stands out to me is we still have access to things like traffic data if you look at the tom tom traffic data and while places like beijing and shanghai seem like they're operating at normal levels if you look at wuhan wuhan still basically has the traffic footprint 
of like the American cities that are locked down right now. And we're out in April and, you know, the Wuhan outbreak was back in December, possibly November. So I don't know. The, the one thing I will say about the funny money is, and we've discussed it before, some of the reports that came out from the off the ground in Wuhan early on, joint reports with WHO and things like that, all these medical studies, the data there, at least in the studies, seems to match what we're seeing in other places in the world. And so in that sense, it was valid, helpful information. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a, a bigger picture behind that, that as of right now is being obfuscated in some way. Yeah, there are also official reports from the Chinese government on the economy uh, showed that the Chinese manufacturing and service sector activity expanded in March unexpectedly after some bad contractions in February, which is when they had the heart of their lockdown. But a Barron's article cast some aspersions on that data. They used data from a company called SpaceNo that monitors economies around the world from space. And it shared with Barron's weekly data that it compiles from three satellites that look at infrared signals from China. And it's looked at 5,000 locations using infrared data that are key in China's supply chain and that that data showed a deep ongoing contraction. The Chinese economy is, they may, to the extent that they can reopen and maybe get a little bit more domestic demand, like car sales are back up to some degree uh, with massive incentives in March. But now demand for Chinese exports is going to be extremely low with the rest of the world now uh, experience their own economic difficulties uh, with all of the lockdown measures that have been put in place. So uh, I know we spent a lot of time on China today, but number one, that's where the virus originated. And number two, they got, you know, 1.5 billion people. So that's a, a big portion of the world. So, so sorry if this was too much China for y'all, but it's, uh, uh, it's, I think, maybe the most important country uh, to be looking at uh, outside of since I'm an American. Probably the U.S. is my number one, but uh, probably the, the number two country that I, I think uh, has the most relevant news when we're talking about this crisis. Well, by virtue of being the earliest, they they give us a sort of a look ahead in time relative to where we are here in the United States, but even the outbreaks in Europe. On the flip side, as we've talked extensively about, um, the acuity of that data, if you will, is not always going to be up to the up to the level that we may want. So, all right, well, we uh we got a lot under our belt here. Let's pack it in for today. Got a lot more stuff still that we didn't have a chance to get to, but I can uh, take advantage of Ben and use his research for the solo pod tomorrow <laughs> that's what i'm here for <laughs> uh and uh we'll be back then again please tell your friends uh, about this podcast uh, if you want to subscribe just search i think if you just search nate duncan in your podcast but you don't even have to search nate duncan coronavirus which uh you know i, I kind of like them better <laughs> searching nate duncan rather than nate duncan coronavirus uh personally but it, either of those searches will probably get get you there if you're telling your friends about it just tell them to search uh, for that and if you want to support us patreon.com slash duncan larue uh, is the best way to do that and i will talk to you all tomorrow till then